W.E.B. Dubois' long struggle against white world supremacy is well known by all who cite his famous turn-of-the-century declaration that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. Though Dubois would also analyze in great detail the souls of black folk, the souls of white folk, and the autobiography of a race in the United States and in the modern world, his key contribution is illuminating the vast scope of the problem of the color line in class analysis, the history of social stratification in the United States and the world system the politics of the United States, people of African descent, and the world system, and the quest for a democratic, just, and egalitarian world order. His development of social thought and his political practice constitute the most persistent and penetrating critique and challenge to social justice and social inequality mounted by 20th-century intellectuals and political activists. It was Dubois who built on the revolutionary tradition of Karl Marx and the 19th-century revolutionaries whose praxis Marx attempted to frame and articulate and who indeed surpassed this tradition with even deeper analysis of the social world that had evolved over the previous 500 years. The idea for this book was conceived during the commemoration of the centennial of the souls of black folk, since I wished to locate this commemoration in the context of Dubois's larger contribution to clarifying the nature of the modern world, the color line and the possibilities for human emancipation. By the 1930s Dubois was not only arguing for the humanity of black people and the peoples of the dark world but also seeking to transform our intellectual landscape by a dramatic reshaping of our understanding of the social world. Dubois illuminated the world-scale scope of racism as central and not incidental to our historical system in a manner that is not only dimly understood by most scholars of the social world but seldom even glimpsed by them. So it was on the centennial of W.E.B. Dubois' great classic. The Souls of Black Folk, that I set out to explore two of its central themes, one, the critique of the accommodationist stance of Booker T. Washington in favor of a militant fight for political inclusion of black people in a truly democratic nation and, two, the elaboration of the duality of the African-American people and the significance of their monumental battle to transform or transcend the color line. Although this itself was a daunting task, it is not possible to justify a singular focus on the souls of black folk. For Dr. Dubois' later writings constitute the most elegant attempt ever not only to navigate the contours of the world color line but also to abolish it. During his long intellectual and activist life, Dubois inhabited, complicated, and discarded a variety of ideological stances, mixed idealism and pragmatism, and pushed the barriers of the possible in his profound exploration of the far reaches of a collectivized vision for the advancement of black people and for all humanity. In the process of seeking to change first race relations in the United States and then power relations in the world system, Dubois worked, fought, and allied with a dizzying number of individuals, organizations, institutions, movements, and states. That Dubois was so intensely involved in the process of thinking through and implementing so many strategies is not only a testament to this giant of a figure in our history but also a testament to all who have been involved. It is no wonder that Dubois's Pulitzer Prize winning biographer, David Levering Lewis, Titled the first volume of Dubois' biography W.E.B. Dubois, Biography of a Race, 1868-1919, and the second volume W.E.B. Dubois, The Fight for Equality in the American Century, 1919-1963. This is a testament not merely to Dr. Dubois as an individual who was so strongly identified with the life of a people, of oppressed strata, and finally of humanity ourselves, but also to all of those social strata to whom he dedicated his life. My point is that even such fulsome praise greatly oversimplifies not only a complex human being and his interactions with a complex set of actors but also the struggles with which he is so closely identified, the struggle against capitalist exploitation and the social dominations of race, class, and gender, the hegemony of the United States of America over the world system, 
the system of white world supremacy, and the rise of the dark world. Over the course of these struggles, he could be classified variously as a bourgeois democrat, a pan-African nationalist, a Fabian socialist, a revolutionary internationalist, a revolutionary nationalist, and a Marxist revolutionary. During this long period of struggle and writing he engaged in fights with any number of ideological foes and learned lessons from all of these fights that gradually were incorporated into his overall worldview. Since the sociology of the color line is the focus of this chapter, I focus on that component of Dubois' contribution to this issue, though it is not always easy to compartmentalize his views given the awesome scope of the preoccupations of the man that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., honored as one of the most remarkable men of our time, an intellectual giant exploring the frontiers of knowledge and a dedicated teacher who gave his life to teaching all of us about our tasks of emancipation, King 1968-1. Cheryl Townsend Gilkes, 1996 has provided us with an astounding and insightful analysis of how Dubois perceived the expansion of democracy in the United States and the role of blacks in the democratization of the United States and quite literally in the making of America. Gilkes holds that Dubois heralded three great revolutions in the making of the United States, those of women, labor, and black folk, Gilkes 1996-112. Black women embodied all three revolutions in their historical roles in the family, the community, and the labor force. Gilkes 1996-112. Dubois held furthermore that a decisive consequence of the positioning of black women at the intersection of race, class, and gender has been their development of a critical perspective or standpoint. In order, then, to understand the overall breadth of the Dubois-ian perspective Gilkes argues, one must first grasp that Dubois believed that the expansion of democracy in the United States and the role of blacks in this democratization is the making of America. Gilkes locates the origins of sociological theory and the attempts of students of political economy to explain the massive changes in European society fueled by the industrial and political revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. Marx, Max Weber, and Emile Durkheim focused on the issues of class, social order, and industrialization. Dubois, located in the United States, saw clearly how the issues of race, class, and gender impacted the making of America. He viewed black women as the intellectual leadership of the race, Gilkes 1996-128. Black women, he argued, exercised a higher morality in their political behavior, a higher morality rooted in religious faith. Dubois thought black women to be role models for human emancipation. The black women's club movement had a profound influence on Dubois and nurtured what Gilkes refers to as his feminism and his overall social analysis. Dubois is also said to have exercised influence among the black women's club movements. Gilkes's framing of Dubois' contribution through the lens of black feminist theory explains in part what is unique in Dubois as a critical intellectual theorizing the making of America. I review here Dubois' role in the intellectual debates and the practical politics on the United States, but I also attempt to articulate his role in analyzing the social contradictions of the modern world system, which continue to be of enormous importance to scholars, the exploited classes, the oppressed people of color, women, and all interested in the construction of a just, democratic, and egalitarian world. Dubois' analysis speaks to a comprehensive analysis of the capitalist world and its social and political contradictions and most importantly to its relations of rule. One his understanding of the relation of the color line to relations of rule is key to grasping the significance of his work. His work helps us to understand not only the social and class structure of the capitalist world economy but also its relations of rule. Dubois' analysis of the first reconstruction and its aftermath is key to our analysis. The Republican Party's political abandonment of the freedmen in the 1870s, the strength of the counter-revolution in the South, and the reversal of the alliance. 
with the Southern populists enormously undermined the belief among African Americans and their leaders about the possibility of the race being able talks by utilizing conventional political means. In this context there occurred a revival of the ideas that had been popular in the 1850s concerning the importance of African American racial solidarity and Negro support of Negro businesses, see Meyer 1962-256. The end of radical reconstruction marked the end of the system of class alliances most central to the relations of rule of that period and the inauguration of a new ruling coalition that would serve in part to reassert authority over the freedmen. This was important because the democratic thrust of the freedmen posed an example for other groups and involved an attempt to coalesce with other groups against a fundamentally undemocratic social system. Radical Reconstruction posed a democratic model for the people of the United States, one that gave voice to the least among us, thus establishing a precedent for broad inclusiveness and rectification of injustice for the United States. The choice was whether this would be a model for the growth of the nation or whether it would seek the continuation of a privileged existence for certain sections of the population. Those who opposed the establishment of a multiracial democracy sought to achieve their objectives by gaining control over the freedmen, disenfranchising them, controlling their schools, and, most important, controlling their leadership. Southern whites and northern philanthropists wanted a Negro leader who would symbolize the end of Reconstruction and represent moderate solutions to the race problem. One of the main ideologists of the New South, Henry Grady, advocated a policy by which there would be industrial cooperation between the North and the South but in which the South's customs and race relations would prevail because the white people of the South knew best what would benefit the Negro. Grady argued that whites and Negroes in the South were the best of friends and that Negroes were as much opposed as whites to outside interference. Grady pointed out that although the South stood for economic cooperation between the races, it emphatically did not believe in social equality. Grady even argued that the Southern white elites were prepared to use the best Negroes, the most gifted of them, to forestall the political aspirations of their own people. We have no fear of, the Negroes gaining control in the South, already we are attaching to us the best elements of that race, and as we proceed our alliance will broaden, quoted in Cox 1950-238. It is in this context that we should assess Booker T. Washington's speech at the Atlanta Cotton States and International Exposition on September 18, 1895, the year of Frederick Douglass's death. In the 1890s liberal arts colleges were temporarily eclipsed by growing support for industrial education including manual training, home economics, preparation for farming, and trades such as shoemaking, printing, carpentry, and bricklaying. Washington was president of one of the nation's best industrial schools for blacks, Tuskegee Institute. Industrial education among blacks was widely believed to lead eventually to a class of self-sufficient artisan entrepreneurs. It was on behalf of this vision that Washington spoke. He argued that Negroes should cultivate their relations with their southern neighbors instead of moving to a foreign land. Cast down your bucket where you are, he implored, Washington 1971-5. The South offered opportunities in agriculture, mechanics, commerce, domestic service, and the professions, it is in the world of business, Washington felt, that the Negro has the best chance. However, our greatest danger is that in the great leap from slavery to freedom we may overlook that the masses of us are to live by the production of our hands, Washington 1971-5. To white employers who were trying to make decisions about their labor force and wondering about the utilization of immigrant labor, Washington argued. Cast down your buckets where you are. Cast it down among the eight million Negroes whose habits you know, whose fidelity and love you have tested. Cast down your bucket among those people who have, without strikes and labor wars, tilled your fields, cleared your forests, builded your railroads and cities, and brought forth the treasures from the bowels of the earth, 
and helped make possible this magnificent representation of the progress of the South. In all things that are purely social we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one is the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. Washington 1971-5, 6. Agitation about social equality is the extremist folly, Washington concluded, political progress will come to us as a result of the service we render. No race that has anything to contribute to the markets of the world is long in any degree ostracized, Washington 1971-7. 2. The next day the Atlanta Constitution remarked that Washington's whole speech had been a platform upon which blacks and whites can stand and do justice to one another, quoted in Cox 1950-239. The speech stamps Booker T. Washington as a wise counselor and safe leader, quoted in Marable 1986-42. James Creelman, a famous war correspondent, said a story to the New York World that described Booker T. Washington as a Negro Moses who had delivered an oration that marks a new epoch in the history of the South. See Washington 1965-157. Initially black people's response to Washington was mixed. T. Thomas Fortune, editor of the New York Age, called Washington the new Frederick Douglass. W. Calvin Chase, editor of the Washington Bee, described Washington's speech as death to blacks and uplifting to whites. African Methodist Episcopal Zion Bishop Henry McNeil Turner thought it would be a long time before blacks would be able to undo the harm done by Washington's speech. The Atlanta advocate condemned Washington's sycophantic attitude, see Marable 1986-42. Washington's strength is that he blended an emphasis on self-help and racial solidarity designed to build a strong class of Negro landowners and businessmen with an ability to appeal to the best sentiments among the Southern upper class and the Northern philanthropists. Three in Dubois' estimate, the striking, ascendancy of Booker T. Washington was due to his mastery of the speech and thought of triumphant commercialism. Dubois 1961-42-43. Despite his public and studied role as an accommodator, however, behind the scenes Washington used his resources to fight for civil rights. In 1900 he obtained funds from white philanthropists to lobby against a racist election provision in the Louisiana Constitution. From 1903 to 1904 he privately fought Alabama's disenfranchisement laws in the federal courts, and in 1903 to 1904 he spent at least $4,000 to promote the struggle against Jim Crow, see Marable 1986-43. Booker T. Washington was not only the most distinguished black leader of this period, 1895-1915, he was also the most powerful. His authority derived from his political influence and from his popularity with philanthropists. No black schools received donations from Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, and various other donors without Washington's approval. For he served as a political advisor to Presidents Roosevelt and Taft, and recommended all of the black appointees made by President Theodore Roosevelt and most of the black appointments made by President Taft, Seymour and Rudwick 1976-222. Although Dubois had previously been a supporter of Washington, he took strong exception to Washington's condoning of the caste system and his according to black people the major responsibility for racial prejudice. Five. He was also concerned about the extent to which Washington was able to silence his critics through intimidation and revengeful acts. Six black intellectuals by and large dissented from Washington's program. The Afro-American Council, the forum for the radical protest tradition from 1890 to 1908, began to level severe criticism at Washington toward the end of the century. In 1902, however, Washington supporters took over the council, removed Ida Wells Barnett from her position as secretary, and replaced African Methodist Episcopal Zion Bishop Alexander Walters with T. Thomas Fortune as council president. William Monroe Trotter accused Dubois of not standing up to the Tuskegee takeover and of showing evidence of jumping on the Washington bandwagon. Seven. In 1903, 
Trotter and three other radicals disrupted a meeting at which Washington spoke, they were arrested, and Trotter spent a month in jail. Dubois had not known about the plans to disrupt the meeting but agreed with Trotter's criticisms. This marked the definitive split between Washington and Dubois. It was from this point that Dubois began to articulate the notion of a talented tenth, which would be the vehicle of uplift for the black masses. Unlike the Tuskegee machine, which was composed of businessmen, ministers, and politicians seeking to feather their own nests with appeals to racial solidarity, Dubois' theory of the talented tenth held that the black professionals and intellectuals should transcend their narrow self-interest for the common good of all black people. Eight. In 1905 Dubois wrote an article for the Atlanta-based Voice of the People in which he charged that the Tuskegee machine had been funneling hush money to several black newspapers, which meant that they were being dominated by Washington for political purposes. In the ensuing controversy, Dubois concluded that there was no longer a basis for cooperation with Washington since by means of downright bribery and intimidation Washington was influencing men to do his will, he was seeking not the welfare of the Negro race but personal power. Quoted in Marable 1986-55. In 1905 Dubois formed the Niagara Movement with the support of Trotter, Walters, and educator John Hope. The membership of the new organization represented diverse ideological strands. Some had previously been associated with the Tuskegee machine, some might be called Trotterites, and others were socialists. Overall the Niagara Movement consisted of the most progressive fraction of the middle class those willing to sacrifice their material and political security for the sake of advancing the general interests of black people at all levels. The new organization might have emblazoned on its banners Dubois' words from of Mr. Booker T. Washington and others, manly self-respect is worth more than land and houses, and, a people who voluntarily surrender such respect, or cease striving for it, are not worth civilizing, Dubois 1961-48. This group followed in the tradition of Frederick Douglass and based themselves on the tenet persistent manly agitation is the way to liberty, quoted in Robert Allen 1970-96. In sharp and vigorous language the Niagara movement placed the blame for the race problem squarely on the shoulders of whites. The organization drafted a statement of principles, calling among other things for universal manhood suffrage, equal treatment in public places, equal opportunities in economic life, equal treatment in the court system an end to the use of Negroes as strikebreakers, an end to discrimination against Negroes by trade unions, an end to racial discrimination, and an end to segregated churches. Nine. The statement concluded in typical spirited fashion, declaring that on the above grievances we do not hesitate to complain, and to complain loudly and insistently. To ignore, these wrongs is to prove ourselves unworthy of freedom. Persistent manly agitation is the way to liberty, Grant 1968-209. Although Niagara Movement members were actively engaged in fighting for various local reforms, they did not build up a large membership. The organization's publication, The Horizon, consistently lost money, and the organization's fundraising capabilities were negligible, having raised less than $1,300 in its first two years. In addition members were often behind in their dues. Tensions developed between members and within the leadership, including a sharp conflict between Trotter and Dubois in 1907. By 1908 many of the branches had ceased to have regular meetings, Marable 1986-68. The Tuskegee machine had set out to destroy the new organization from the beginning. One of Washington's lieutenants was able to get the Associated Press Bureau in Buffalo to halt its coverage of the group's activities there. Washington's secretary, Emmett Scott, ordered the National Negro Press Bureau to suppress any information about the group, according to Marable 1986-56. Moreover, Washington also used the more vicious tactic of getting his enemies removed from jobs through the use of his political clout. 
This method also was used to intimidate actual and potential supporters of Dubois, see Marable 1986 58-59. Although the Niagara movement failed organizationally, it clearly prefigured the rise of an alternative model to the accommodationist program of Booker T. Washington. Tuskegee's power was able to undermine the new organization, but its power was clearly on the wane. Niagara's focus on the legal redress of 58 Chapter 2 Grievances prefigured the approach of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, which was founded in 1909 when after a race riot in Springfield, Illinois, the white socialist William English Walling challenged white liberals to form a new movement for racial equality. Mary White Ovington then contacted Walling and Dr. Henry Moskowitz, who decided to organize a conference. Oswald Garrison Villar was called into the discussion and asked to issue a conference called Dot 10. The call was finally issued by a who's who of socialists and liberal reformers, including pioneer social workers Jane Addams and Florence Kelly, writer William Dean Howells, and educator John Dewey, Marable 1986-72. Although Villar, who had worked closely with Washington, requested the involvement of the Tuskegee machine, Washington and his group quickly recognized a threat and called on Carnegie and other white philanthropists to boycott the new organization. During the course of the conference, however, Dubois was able to win over some of the persons who had previously supported the Washington position in the Niagara-Tuskegee debate, especially Villar, Marable 1986-72. Within a year a consensus had been reached to form a permanent organization to be called the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Most of the members of the Niagara movement joined the new organization, although William Monroe Trotter, among others, played a lesser role because he feared white control of the organization. The Niagara constituency, however, made up the majority of the black membership of the new organization. Washington proceeded with a full-fledged attack on the new organization. He ordered the New York Age to attack Walling in an editorial. Tuskegee machine lieutenants were ordered to criticize blacks who were joining the NAACP or creating new local chapters, see Marable 1986-72-73. In contrast to the all-black Niagara movement, however, the NAACP was interracial in composition, although Dubois was the only black person among the national leadership. Dubois was named Director of Publicity and Research, the post from which he founded the NAACP journal The Crisis. The official purpose of the new organization, as indicated in its incorporation papers, was to promote equality of rights and eradicate caste and race prejudice among citizens of the United States, to advance the interests of colored citizens, to secure for them impartial suffrage, and to increase their opportunities for securing justice in the courts, education for their children, employment according to their ability, and complete equality before the law, quoted in Hughes 1968-212. The new organization got off to a strong start. Within the first three months it had opened its first local office in Chicago and filed a petition of pardon for a South Carolina sharecropper who had been sentenced to the death penalty for slaying a constable who had burst into his cabin after midnight to charge him with breach of contract. In November 1910 the first issue of the crisis was published. In this issue Dubois stated that the crisis would stand for the highest ideals of American democracy, and for reasonable but earnest and persistent attempts to gain these rights and realize these ideals. The crisis attained a readership of 12,000 in its first year, eventually growing to 100,000, Hughes 1968-213. Within two years the NAACP had grown to 24 chapters, but violence and racial discrimination were increasing, not decreasing. The number of lynchings increased from 63 to 79. Within another year the number of chapters had more than doubled to 50, 
but the organization still faced the enmity of wealthy philanthropists who gave no aid and conservative whites, and even some blacks, who attacked the NAACP as being too radical. These groups took the position that the NAACP's demand for complete equality was impractical if not downright utopian, Hughes 1968-213-214. In the crisis Dubois had already begun to cast about for potential members of an alliance for racial equality. He called in the pages of the crisis for a black Jewish alliance, repeatedly denounced anti-Semitism, and praised Jewish Americans as a tremendous force for good and uplift in this country. However, Dubois also argued that the abolition of lynching and opposition to political disenfranchisement and Jim Crow required a race-conscious policy and thus demanded a certain degree of black unity, see Marable 1986-79. Throughout this early period, Dubois had had an uneasy relationship with NAACP dispersing treasurer Oswald Garrison Villar, who tended to be paternalistic toward blacks. Villar saw his role as curbing the radical currents inside the NAACP and thus distrusted Dubois' militancy. Over the year 1913 there were a number of conflicts between Dubois and Villar, and Villar, who by this time had become chairman of the board of the NAACP finally resigned as chairman of the board but remained as a board member. When he subsequently attempted to curb Dubois' editorial independence in the crisis, the majority of the board sided with Dubois, see Marable 1986-80-81. Despite this, the organization lived in an uneasy tension with an editorial policy that was independent of the organization but dependent on the congruence between the organization and a particular editor. This tension gnawed at the entrails of the organization, eventually leading to a split between Dubois and the leadership of the NAACP. Although the tensions in the NAACP to some extent took the form of tension between Dubois and the remainder of the leadership, all white, accompanying this was the tension between radical and liberal tendencies in the organization and across the broader movement for racial equality. The increasing weight of radical and liberal tensions in the black freedom struggle is an indication of a larger shift that was reflected in the strategies of the contending forces. The Rise of the Dark World Within with the birth of the NAACP there came a dramatic shift in relations of force toward what Washington refers to as the man farthest down, Washington and Park 1913. This was not only a shift in the political culture of the United States but a shift of world-scale proportions. Dubois' Pan-African Congress involvement was a preview of this evolution. While I elaborate on the details of this shift in the next chapter, we must grasp that this change in world relations of force was something that Washington was forced to address, given that his rise to prominence was based in part on a broad political calculation that his strategy would help to end the political turmoil of the first reconstruction, which the nation needed to take its proper place in the world. This involved strengthening the United States in relationship to other nations, a process that had started in the 1870s with the decline of British hegemony and the reassertion of authority over the freedmen whose social practices had unleashed a much broader yearning for social change among others in the lower strata of U.S. society. During this same period, which extended from 1870 to 1914, the social world witnessed a prodigious growth and expansion of the workers' movement not only in the United States but throughout the pan-European world which some refer to as the heyday of the Second International, Wallerstein 1991-22. The urgency of Washington's study of the man farthest down must be situated within the context of these changes in relations of force. The Washington program had sought to assimilate the previously enslaved strata into U.S. society on terms that were most favorable to the capitalist elites and the higher, white, strata of the United States. By 1910, however, the conservative forces that Washington represented were losing ground to the rise of the progressive movement and a variety of socialist currents, both of which were represented in the NAACP. 
This was the context for Washington's European trip with Robert Park. As documented in The Man Farthest Down, Booker T. Washington, assisted by Robert Park, traveled to Europe to find out about the conditions of the poorer and working classes there, especially in those regions from which increasing numbers of immigrants were coming to the United States. Washington was particularly concerned about efforts to divert a portion of those immigrants to the southern states to substitute for black labor, which some saw as a potential solution to the South's race problem, Washington and Park 1913-3-4. Washington was of the opinion that there was a distinctive European race problem, though, and that it was different from the U.S. problem. The value in exploring the dimensions of the European race problem for him was to demonstrate that other societies had their own distinctive problems in this area and to illustrate that all societies contained a bottom strata who were severely stigmatized, the subject of stereotypical views, and subject to prejudicial treatment. Washington felt that these bottom strata in European countries were similar in social position to black people in the southern United States. Though there was some concern that Washington was seeing the worst of Europe and not all the glories that visitors should see, Washington offered that the man who is interested in living things must seek them in the grime and dirt of everyday life. To be sure, the things one sees there are not always pleasant, but the people one meets are interesting, and if they are sometimes among the worst they are also frequently among the best people in the world. At any rate, wherever there is struggle and effort there is life. Washington and Park 1913-13, My Emphasis Washington conceived of a class of people in the bottom strata who had moved to the city from the agricultural zones of their respective nations, but there were some who had sunk to the bottom from a higher social position, some of whom he characterized as degenerate. This presumably was a characteristic of social strata in the most developed countries, such as England. This, of course, sounds very much like the characterization of the much-reviled lumpen proletariat. Washington held that black folk were never without hope or a sense of joy in life. Washington and Park 1913-26. Interestingly, while there was a campaign to limit the birth rate of this bottom rung of English society, what Theodore Roosevelt called race suicide, Washington and Park 1913-27, thousands of immigrants from the south of Europe were pouring into London every year to take the places left vacant by the recession of the native Anglo-Saxon, Washington and Park 1913-27. Despite Washington's implicit recognition of the international scope of the economic arena in this case, he attributed the differences in the depth of poverty in England, with its starving and destitute people, and the United States as a special or exceptional characteristic of the United States. What was the solution that Washington would modestly recommend to the English on how they might deal with their destitute populations? Give them the same opportunity for constant and steady work that the Negro had in the South and establish schools to provide industrial education that would enable them to enter a trade, similar to what Washington was doing at Tuskegee Institute. Washington and Park 1913-36. Another problem with England, according to Washington, was that the proportion of its population dedicated to agriculture was smaller than anywhere else in the world. As opposed to Hungary, with an agricultural population that comprised 68% of its total, Italy, with 59%, Denmark, with 48%, and the United States, with 37.5%, England and Wales in 1901 had only 8% of their populations engaged in agriculture, Washington and Park 1913-49-50. Despite discoveries that Washington felt were practices unique to European societies, he also discovered some commonalities. He was surprised when he saw women in Vienna, Austria, walking the streets barefoot, as did many in the countryside of southern Europe. On asking a native Austrian about this practice, Washington was told, oh, well, they are Slovaks. This sounded to Washington very much like a familiar refrain, oh, well, they are Negroes. 
Washington and Park 1913-56. Everywhere he went in Austria and Hungary he found the people to be divided by race, but what was common to all of these areas was that it was the Slavs, of which there were five or six branches, who occupied the bottom rung of the economic ladder. The story of this inferior species was the same everywhere, they were lazy and would not work, they had no initiative, they were immoral and not fitted to govern themselves. For all these attributions, Washington found that it was these groups who did nearly all of the really hard, disagreeable, and ill-paid labor, Washington and Park 1913-57. Washington argues that it was the situation of the Slavs in the Austro-Hungarian Empire that was most similar to that of the Negro in the southern United States. They were an agricultural people who had lived on and worked the land for centuries, but they were viewed as an inferior race, distinguished by the language that they spoke rather than the color of their skin. Washington and Park 1913-65 Washington takes some pains to describe the socialist movement in Hungary and Italy in terms of its representation of the masses at the bottom of life in Europe, Washington and Park 1913-100. It was through this party that the millions of people who had had no voice and had no ideas with respect to government were learning to think and give voice to their grievances and aspirations. For the most part, Washington argues, there was little awareness of the extent to which the immigrants who came to the United States from these sections of Europe had been influenced by socialist ideas. Washington details his impression of the socialists he met in Denmark and Italy, where the most patriotic and brilliant men were writers, students, and teachers. In Poland he met socialists who were an active part of the revolution in Russia. Wherever the masses of the people were oppressed, where the people on the bottom were being crushed by the people above them, the meaning of socialism was revolution. Where governments showed a liberal spirit, however, socialists showed a spirit of cooperation instead of seeking to overturn the government by means of revolution. Washington denied any sympathy for socialism, especially given his location in the southern United States. He believed that change should be brought about through education, which changes the individual from within rather than by government decree. In this way the individual is made fit for life but is still free, Washington and Park 1913-102. When the serfs were freed in Hungary, Italy, and other parts of Europe, they were given land but denied political privileges. Within a short time the peasant owners were wiped out and their lands absorbed into the large estates. In contrast, when the Negroes were emancipated from slavery in the United States, they were given the franchise but did not know how to use it. For Washington these two instances proved his long-held position that it is hard for a man to make use of anything that he is given without effort and without the proper education, Washington and Park 1913-104. As we have seen, despite his eminence as a public figure, Washington retained his sympathy for and commitment to the man farthest down, given his own origins as a slave in the southern United States. Even though this European trip was a personal tour to acquaint himself with the lives of the man farthest down in Europe, he was also interested in the methods they used to better their lives, that is, the socialist movement and socialist ideas. So it is not surprising that he sought an audience with John Burns who had lived the life of a casual laborer and had organized the Great Dock Strike in 1889, which brought together into the labor unions 100,000 starving and disorganized laborers who had previously been shut out of organized labor's protection. Burns was an agitator, a socialist, and was referred to as the man with the red flag, Washington and Park 1913-361. He had been arrested many times for making speeches and had served three months on the charge of rioting. In 1889 he was elected to the London County Council and in 1890 to Parliament. As a member of the London County Council, Burns was instrumental in enacting a series of projects that resulted in dramatic increases in the living circumstances of the working people of the area of London for which he was responsible. 
in response to 138-acre estate plan down to the minutest detail to accommodate some 5,000 inhabitants, Washington expressed a skeptical note in his own mind, but not to Burns, in the building of this little paradise all of the architectural and engineering problems had indeed been solved. There, remained, however, the problem of human nature, and the question that I asked myself was, will these people be able to live up to their surroundings? Washington in Park 1913-375. Even so, for Washington these folk are fortunate that they have a leader who speaks to them of their faults as well as their virtues, so that they can be inspired toward the better life that is open to them. Washington concluded from his travels that the position of black people in the United States whether in slavery or in freedom was not as exceptional as it had frequently seemed. The man farthest down in the United States had much in common with the man farthest down in Europe. They had both been subject people in slavery and in serfdom. They had both gained their freedom in the course of the previous century, and they both found that their emancipation from bondage was a first step, not the full realization of freedom. The socialist advocates of the laboring people in Europe felt that the growth of factories and city life undermined the independence of the laboring classes, but Washington did not think that the socialists were united around a common program, far from it. He was quite skeptical of what he referred to as the old-fashioned socialists, who believed that a social catastrophe would bring an end to the present regime and thus enable the political power of the masses to reorganize society in a way that would give every individual an economic opportunity equal to every other. Given the differences among individuals, Washington did not see how this state of equality would be obtained. Washington and Park 1913-381-382 Washington did see, however, a great silent revolution already in progress, a revolution that was touching and changing the lives of those at the bottom, especially in remote farming communities. In contrast to the social order of feudalism, which was determined entirely from the top, the new social order of the 19th and 20th centuries was preoccupied not with holding down the man farthest down but with lifting him up, making him more efficient in his labor, and giving him a more intelligent share and interest in the life of the community and polity. The great medium for achieving these ends was the school. This revolution was seeking not to tear down or level up in order to bring about what Washington viewed as an artificial equality, but to give every individual a chance to make good to determine her or his own place or position in the community by the character and quality of the service she or he was able to perform. Washington wanted to convey finally that in all the movements that affected the masses of the people, socialism, nationalism, emigration, the movements for the reorganization of urban or rural life, there was always the man farthest down, groping for a path upward. The upward-seeking efforts of the man farthest down generated responses in the larger society, the collective effect of which was to raise the level of everyone above him. One cannot, Washington concludes, hold another down in the ditch unless one is down in the ditch oneself. In helping the man farthest down, one is freeing oneself of the burden that would drag all to the same level. Washington reports that the overall impact of his trip throughout the lower strata of European society was to push himself to look at the world from their perspective and to discover that the world looks more interesting, more hopeful, and more filled with God's providence, when you are at the bottom looking up that when you are at the top looking down. Washington and Park 1913-389. Despite the skepticism of the militants who had long opposed the accommodationism of Washington and his followers, I think that Washington had of necessity moved to a different political position, a movement that was a sign of the times. The strong accommodationist position that he had taken was fast losing credibility among any but the truly hardcore. To truly oppose the party of movement, the party of the status quo had to give ground so that they could maintain the essentials of the social order. This means they had to move to a more liberal position to establish a new equilibrium in which the dominant strata maintained the upper hand. 
the oppressed strata were about to shake the foundations of the old order and stability required that the elite give some ground. By 1915, when Booker T. Washington died, the conservatives were largely in retreat. It was now a different world. Black people were moving in increasingly larger numbers from the farms to the cities and from south to north. With blacks increasingly concentrated in the large cities in the north, the strength of their numbers and the right to vote became powerful weapons in their defense. However, in 1911 the National Urban League was founded by an interracial group ideologically close to Booker T. Washington to deal principally with the problems migrant blacks, mostly from rural areas, encountered in their increasingly urban life. The National Urban League was strictly a service organization, not at all involved in protest or popular political action. By 1915 the mantle of leadership was passing slowly from the conservatives associated with the Tuskegee machine to the radicals connected with the NAACP who in the black world were represented by W.E.B. Dubois. Shortly after Washington's death, the NAACP called a Negro Leadership Conference, which included all views, ranging from Trotter to Emmett Scott, formerly Washington's secretary, to try to reach a consensus on the principal goals for racial equality, Broderick 1969-366-372. The Amenia Conference resolutions held that all forms of education were desirable for the Negro and should be encouraged that political freedom was necessary to achieve highest development, that Negro advancement needed an organization and the practical working understanding of Negro leaders, and that old controversies were best forgotten. Finally, the conference realizes the peculiar difficulties, in the South and the special need of understanding between leaders of the race who live in the South and those who live in the North. It has learned to understand and respect the good faith, methods and ideals of those who are working for the solution of the problem in various sections of the country. Broderick 1969-371-372-11 Despite the power of his intellect and the force of his determination, Dubois was ultimately expelled from the NAACP in the 1930s because of his radicalism. Why did this happen? Despite Dubois's dramatic announcement that the problem of the 20th century was the problem of the color line, the conjuncture at which he produced the souls of black folk was one of relative optimism about the chances of forcing a breach in the color line. The talented 10th social bloc sought to demonstrate their dignity, intelligence, commitment, and patriotism to whites. This social bloc was militant but culturally subordinate to the white upper strata of the United States. This strategy was a measure of their level of understanding of the social forces with which they were confronted and thus the condition for a measure of medium-run optimism about the possibility for a national solution brokered by such appeals. While Dubois had been criticized by the young militants of the New Negro movement during World War I, by the 1920s his engagements and fights with these young radicals and, his observations of the increased horrors of U.S. society and of the pan-European world would push him to seek broader solutions to the problems of race, now following the paths blazed by the new Negro radicals. These deliberations and debates led him toward an embrace with the radicals of the three continents, Asia, Africa, and Latin America, including an intense study of Marx and the Marxist-influenced intellectuals around the world. This meant that he deepened his understanding of the relationship between the fight for racial justice in the United States and the fight against imperialism, capitalism, colonialism, and white Western world hegemony. The tone of Dubois' 1920 book, Dark Water, Voices from Within the Veil, Dubois 1999, differs dramatically from that of the souls of black folk. In Dark Water he interprets the Negro problem in the United States and the color problem between the dark world and the white world in light of the great social problems of the day. In his pre-publication commentary on Dark Water, Dubois notes that the nation and the world tend to think of their problems of work and wage, domestic service, government, 
sex, and education, and then envisage the race problem as a part and beyond these, to be considered by itself, if at all, and after more pressing problems. But the analysis presented in Darkwater is intended to show that the color line shows itself not as a separate problem, but directly as a problem of work, rule, sex, and training, Dubois 1975-9. Written during the same period as Madison grants the passing of the Great Race, 1920, and Lothrop Stoddard's The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, 1921. See the introduction for a summary of these works. Darkwater shows Dubois at his finest in combat with inequalities of race and color in a world perspective. In the chapter titled The Souls of White Folk, he casts a withering and critical gaze on the racial arrogance of the white world and takes white folks to task in no uncertain terms. The context that Dubois sets for this of the racial arrogance of the white world is laid out below, and he invites the objects of these criticisms to open their eyes and read the handwriting on the wall. Here Dubois seeks to theorize the souls of white folks to the residents of the dark world and to white folks themselves. He hopes that these voices from behind the veil will bring a shock of recognition to all those he invites to listen in, in the awful cataclysm of world war, where from beating, slandering, and murdering us the white world turned temporarily aside to kill each other, we of the darker people looked on in mild amaze, Dubois 1999-20. Dr. Dubois declares that here is a civilization that has boasted much. Neither Roman nor Arab. Greek nor Egyptian, Persian nor Mongol ever took himself and his own perfection with such disconcerting seriousness as the modern white man. We whose shame, humiliation and deep insult his aggrandizement so often involved were never deceived, Dubois 1999-20. But the white demigods would not listen to our lowly voice even as we pointed silently to their feet of clay, Dubois 1999-20. Was it that the Great War indicated that Europe and the white world had somehow gone mad? Dubois does not allow for any such wiggle room. No, he asserts quite emphatically. This is neither aberration nor insanity, this is Europe, this seeming terrible is the real soul of white culture, back of all culture, stripped and visible today. This is where the world has arrived, these dark and awful depths and not the shining and ineffable heights of which it is boasted, Dubois 1999-22, emphasis and original. While the white world was using the women and men of the dark world in all of the ways known by the holders of social advantages, slowly there began to evolve a theory that the women and men of the dark world were not women and men in the same way as the residents of the white world, but were born beasts of burden for white folk. How could we have thought otherwise? Dubois has the mutter in this mock dialogue. Their voices grow stronger and shriller in accord. The supporting arguments grow and twist themselves in the mouths of merchant, scientist, soldier, traveler, writer and missionary. It is the task of the civilized world to raise them insofar as their shallow capacities allow for any kind of elevation so that they can at least perform useful tasks in the world that we have made, raise cotton, gather rubber, fetch ivory, dig diamonds, Dubois 1999-24. None of this is new, Dubois tells us. One of the age-old follies of humankind has been to explain how the victim was different from the victors in soul and blood, in strength and cunning, and in race and lineage. Dubois 1999-24. What the white world has given us is a single means of making such a distinction, color. Dubois locates the consolidation of this ideology in Boxer Times, when the European powers responded to the 1895 Japanese defeat of China with a policy that they referred to as carving up the Chinese melon. This was, of course, ten years after the partitioning of Africa among the European powers. White supremacy was all but worldwide, he tells us. Africa was dead. India conquered, Japan isolated, and China prostrate, while white America wetted her sword for mongrel Mexico and mulatto South America, lynching her own Negroes all the while, 
Dubois 1999-24. What was new about this business in Dubois' eyes was its imperial width and heaven-defying audacity. This is a response to the writing on the wall of the rich people of the white nations, whose room for maneuver was being more and more limited by the growth in the social power of the working people of those nations. There was a loophole, though, which according to Dr. Dubois was an opportunity for exploitation on a grand scale, for inordinate profits, not only for the very rich but for the middle classes and laborers as well. This chance is the exploitation of the people of the dark world on a global scale. This would allow free reign, with no labor unions, no right to vote, and no onlookers asking inconvenient questions, Dubois 1999-25. For Dubois the main cause of the Great War is all too obvious. In the practical world, there is jealousy and strife for the possession of the labor and the raw materials of the dark world. It was this competition for the labor of yellow, brown, and black folks, Dubois asserts, that was the cause of World War I. Whatever other causes may have contributed to the conflict, they were decidedly subsidiary to this vast quest for the dark world's wealth and toil, Dubois 1999-25. These colonies belt the earth, but they cluster in tropical zones inhabited by darkened people in Hong Kong, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Havana, and Panama. Dubois holds that these are the El Dorados towards which the world powers stretch itching palms, Dubois 1999-26. Germany hoped to rival the other European powers but did not have a source of massive and fast wealth via access to the wealth and toil of the dark world. She turned to China, to Africa, to Asia Minor like a hound quivering on the leash, impatient, irritable, with bloodshot eyes and dripping fangs, Dubois 1999-26. England and France crouched watchfully over their bones growling and wary, but gnawing industriously, while the blood of the dark world whetted their greedy appetites, Dubois 1999-26. So when finally the tinder is lit and the world plunges into war, guarding their national interests, their right to colonies, the chance to levy endless tribute on the darker world, on coolies in China, on starving peasants in India, on black savages in Africa, on dying South Seas Islanders, on Indians of the Amazon, Dubois 1999-27. Even those who had pledged themselves to the Brotherhood of Labor did not envision the working women and men of the dark world as members of their ranks. There is no doubt, Dubois argues, that there was one unanimity among the contending powers in Germany and England, that they maintain white prestige in Africa. Dubois is quite blunt when he says that this amounts to the doctrine of the divine right of white people to steal, Dubois 1999-27. But matters will not end here says a Dr. Dubois whose very tone here is embedded in an overarching analysis of the social dynamics of that period from the underside of the modern world system and the pretensions of modernity. This tone which I feel to be appropriate is too seldom appropriated by the intellectuals of the pan-European world in our time faced with similar atrocities. He holds this war is just a prelude to the armed and indignant protests of these despised and raped peoples. Today Japan is hammering on the door of justice, China is raising her half-manacled hands to knock next, India is writhing for the freedom to knock, Egypt is sullenly muttering, the Negroes of South and West Africa, of the West Indies, and of the United States are just awakening to their shameful slavery, Dubois 1999-28. The white world should not be deceived. This is not indeed the end of all wars, but the beginning of a very terrible struggle that the greed and avarice of the white world will have brought on itself. Alice Eve Weinbaum, 2001 argues that for Dubois during the 1920s whiteness came to signify class as much as race. In Dark Princess he presents an organization called the Darker Peoples of the World. While this organization seems to derive its name from the International League of the Darker People, formed by A. Philip Randolph, Marcus Garvey, C. J. Walker, 
and Japanese representatives, it reflects Dubois' attempt to think through the possibilities and contradictions of elaborating this kind of organizational structure. This clearly represents an attempt to explore the idea of a pan-African and pan-Asian joint solidarity. He is attempting to connect the world's darker people into a single world-shaping force. Here we can see an example of an author who has already taken the cautionary note of Giovanni Righi, Terence Hopkins, and Emmanuel Wallerstein, 1989, about resisting the temptation to reify groups. In the pages of Dark Princess we see evidence of Dubois' awareness of the debates swirling around him about the African-American nation animating Lenin, M. Enroy, C. Chapter 3, and the Communist International. Dubois' Candelia and Matthew debate this position, where Dubois agrees that African-Americans constitute a nation within a nation but also transcends that position by arguing that it merges with all the oppressed nations that together comprise the land of the blacks, Weinbaum 2135. 12 It is here that we see the clearest enunciation of the concept of a racialized internationalism that is similar to a later notion of what has been variously deemed black internationalism, pan-African internationalism, and African internationalism. In an important article in a special issue of positions titled The Afro-Asian Century, Bill V. Mullen argues that Dark Princess represents Dubois' engagement with three central movements and events of the interwar period, the Indian Home Rule and National Movements, the emergence of black radicalism in the United States, and the role of black and Asian radicals in revising Soviet policy on both Negro and Asian liberation during the formation of the Third International after 1919 and the crucial 1922 and 1928 common turns in Moscow, Mullen 2003-218. Mullen hails Dark Princess as a central text representing African-American engagement with the American, Asian, and international left during the 20th century which furthermore demonstrated how resistance to Eurocentric discourses of race led to the radical recasting of Afro-Asian relationships as central to 20th-century world revolutionary struggle, Mullen 2003-219. After his February 1937 visit to China in the midst of civil war, Dubois would write in the Pittsburgh Courier that China is inconceivable, that after only four days there he is absolutely dazed, any attempt to explain the world, without giving a place of extraordinary prominence to China, is futile. He went on to conclude that perhaps the riddle of the universe will be solved in China, and if not, in no part of the world that ignores China, Mullen 2004-3. For Mullen this statement indicates an expansion of Dubois' Pan-African internationalism, my term, to a broader internationalism that holds that Afro-Asian mutuality and recognition are the cornerstones of global liberation against white Western racism and capitalism. Dubois, however, had a much larger scope than many social scientists of that time, and of more recent times, since he straddled what even at that time was a rigid divide between the two cultures, the social sciences and the humanities. Dubois thought that a sense of mutuality and recognition between these two broad groupings of peoples would be central to the struggle binding and bridging the ancient and contemporary colored worlds. Dubois's worldview is said to consist of a welding of quasi-mythic renderings of colored empires in antiquity to a secular, though idealized, Social Comprehension of the Major Political Movements of the 20th Century, Mullen 2004-3. Wilson Moses has dubbed the worldview produced by this synthetic and syncretic fusion Afrocentric Marxism, Moses 1998-96. Dubois had abandoned the liberal nationalism and the bourgeois democratic ideological stance in no uncertain terms with the publication of Dark Water in 1920. The tone of Dark Water differed dramatically from that of the souls of black folk, and the Negro, which fell between the two. Dark Water sparked strong reactions from a variety of reviewers. The Times Literary Supplement of London said that Dark Water revealed the dark depths of a passionate and fanatical mind. 
The Paris edition of the New York Herald featured an editorial on the book titled Black Bolshevism. The reviewer held that Dubois was intoxicated by colonial self-determination, which partakes of the frenzy and represents the spread of the Bolshevist madness, Mullen 2004-12. Indeed, Mullen argues that the events between 1917 and 1928 highlighted in Dark Princess reconfigured Dubois' ideas about Afro-Asia as well as the color of his own political ideas. In 1925 Dubois is said to have indicated his turn in the December Crisis column that noted the formation of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and the American Negro Labor Congress. In response to being questioned about the 1925 meeting of the American Negro Labor Congress in Chicago, Dubois was noncommittal, according to Earl Afari Hutchinson, since he did not know who had organized the conference, but he did defend the right of black people to investigate and sympathize with any industrial reform whether it sprang from Russia, China or the South Seas, Hutchinson 1995-32-33. Dubois's 1926 visit to the Soviet Union overlapped with Harry Haywood's arrival for training at the Moscow University of the Toilers of the East, opened with the support of M. N. Roy in 1926. 13 Dubois would spend six weeks in the Soviet Union while working on Dark Princess. Despite the poverty and the signs of war that he could still clearly see, Dubois felt that Russia was the most hopeful land in the modern world. Although the Russian people seemed as ignorant, poor, and superstitious as the black sin. The United States at the time, Dubois also sensed a new feeling of hope and determination among the workers and peasants of Russia, Dubois 1968-290. I did not believe that the communism of the Russians was the program for America, least of all for a minority group like the Negroes, I saw that the program of the American Communist Party was inadequate for our plight. But I did believe that a people where the differentiation in classes because of wealth had only begun, could be so guided by intelligent leaders that they would develop into a consumer-conscious people, producing for use and not primarily for profit and working into the surrounding industrial organization so as to reinforce the economic revolution bound to develop in the United States and all over Europe and Asia sooner or later. I believed that revolution in the production and distribution of wealth could be a slow, reasoned development and not necessarily a bloodbath. I believe that 13 millions of people, increasing albeit slowly in intelligence, could so concentrate their thought and action on the abolition of their poverty, as to work in conjunction with the most intelligent body of American thought, and that in the future as in the past, out of the mass of American Negroes would arise a far-seeing leadership in lines of economic reform. Dubois 1968-290-291 For Dubois the Pan-African Congress as he called in 1919, 1921 and 1923 were memorable for the excitement they caused among the colonial powers. The prominent newspapers of the colonial world used them to call on their governments to clamp down on colonial unrest. Still Dubois was going too fast for the board of the NAACP, which had no interest in Africa. Their maximum program was to make blacks into citizens of the United States. They had no sense that if Europe persisted in upholding and strengthening the color bar, then the United States would follow suit. Dubois 1968-291. But as Dubois himself tells us, his racial politics from the 1930s onward derived from analytic concepts that he derived from Marxism and from the manner that such concepts were interpreted and implemented in the Soviet Union. As we shall see, I agree only partially with this assertion. I think the influence of Marxism in Dubois' thought does stem in part from his analysis of the Soviet experience but it seems he initially pursued an independent path before deciding to become aligned with official communism. 
I will look first at the reasoning that held during the period in which he was aligned with communism and then return to the revolutionary internationalism that he articulated during the 1930s since this stream of his social thought has had so much influence in the social thought of world any systemic forces since the 1960s. Kate Baldwin, 2002-153, cautions those who would use the corruption and the final failure of the Soviet regime to dismiss Dubois' vision since Dubois himself had argued explicitly that in the final analysis the success or failure of Russian communism was less important than whether the ideals of human uplift as conceived by Marx and Lenin are ideals that should be realized, Baldwin 2002-153. Olga Peters Hasty, 2006, professor of Slavic languages and literatures at Princeton University, explains that in the 19th century, Russian intellectuals often regarded the United States as a potential political model but were confounded by the common issue of human bondage in both societies. These intellectuals condemned slavery in the United States in order to register their opposition to the serfdom that plagued their own society. If the image of the enslaved African figured large in the Russian liberal imagination, after the abolition of slavery and serfdom, it remained a point of linkage between the disenfranchised African Americans and a new Soviet state that valorized the downtrodden and presented itself as the arbiter of a new world system that sought to abolish the inequalities of race and social class. In her analysis of Dubois' unpublished manuscript, Russia and America, an interpretation, in Beyond the Color Line and the Iron Curtain, Kate Baldwin's exploration of the dynamics of the relationship between blacks and Russians allows us a new insight into the logic of how Dubois re-articulated his understanding of the color line through his thinking about and renegotiating the relationship with the new Soviet power. I start on what is familiar ground to some with his comments about his 1926 visit to the Soviet Union. What amazed and uplifted me in 1926 was to see a nation stoutly facing a problem which most other modern nations did not dare even to admit was real. Taking inspiration directly out of the mouths and dreams of the world's savants and prophets, this new Russia led by Lenin and inspired by Marx proposed to build a socialist state with production for use and not for private profit, with ownership of land and capital goods by the state and state control of public services including education and health. It was enough for me to see this mighty attempt. It might fail, I knew, but the effort in itself was social progress and neither foolishness nor crime. Baldwin 2002-154 Ten years earlier, in Dusk of Dawn, Dubois explained how he had come to embrace a Marxian analytic framework and its influence on his strategy for social transformation after his 1926 trip to Russia, see Dubois 1970. He had been profoundly influenced by his observations of the impact of the invasion by the Western powers, the United States, England, France, and the Czechs had left the Soviet people hungry and their cities in ruins but with an unforgettable spirit in the face of the contempt and chicanery of the civilized world. In the face of all these difficulties, they were determined to go forward to establish a government of men such as the world had never seen, Dubois 1968-287. After a struggle with the world and famine, the Soviets had made up their minds to face a set of problems that no other nation was willing to face, the problem of poverty and the maldistribution of wealth. Their solution was to place control over society and the state in the hands of the people who did the work so they could run society in the interests of the people as a whole. Unlike those who argued that only those with long experience in running society or those with special expertise could run society, the revolutionaries held that in the mass of working people existed the ability and character to run society truly in a democratic way. Dubois believed passionately in this dictum and held that this had long been the basis of his fight for black folk. He experienced this as a flight of insight that explained his life in a way that he had not heretofore conceptualized clearly. How does one achieve this, though? without a violent and destructive revolution, which he could not contemplate. 
the oppressed must build their own organization and power, which would then be a resource as they fought to transform society. With regard to the situation of black folk, he realized now that the fight against racial prejudice was a fight against not only the rational and conscious intent of white people to oppress black people but also age-long complexes sunk now largely to unconscious habit and irrational urge, which demanded on our part not only the patience to wait, but the power to entrench ourselves for a long siege against the strongholds of color caste, Dubois 1968-296. The strategy of the NAACP, which sought unimpeded entry into the political life of the country, was only a preliminary to the establishment of democracy, which would replace the tyranny that now dominated industrial life. This position found no traction with the members of the NAACP board, however, who declared that this was simply the same segregation that they had been fighting for some 20 years. Dubois finally realized that he was touching on an old and bleeding sore in Negro thought. From the 18th century down the Negro intelligentsia has regarded segregation as the visible badge of their servitude and as the object of their unceasing attack. The upper-class Negro has almost never been nationalistic. He has never planned or thought of a Negro state or a Negro church or a Negro school. This solution has always been a thought upsurging from the mass, because of pressure which they could not withstand and which compelled a racial institution or chaos. Continually such institutions were founded and developed, but this took place against the advice and best thought of the intelligentsia. Dubois 1968-305, My Emphasis what sense can one make of the stance of the NAACP board? Dubois cautions that common sense contradicts any such absolute stance. When the NAACP was formed, a great mass of black people attended black schools, were members of black churches, lived in black neighborhoods, voted in a block for particular political parties and candidates, and cooperated with other black people to fight the further extension of segregation. Even that position could not be absolute, though for wherever an increase in segregation benefited the mass of black people, then such action was taken. In the midst of this great ideological struggle in the NAACP, the organization was beset by the contention from the Russian and American communists, who wished to foment revolution in the United States by organizing a campaign to defend a group of black youths who had been accused of raping two white women in Scottsboro, Alabama. The intervention of the Russian communists in this case, Dubois argues, was based on an abysmal ignorance of patterns of race prejudice in the United States. They made the whole issue turn on property rights and race, and they spread propaganda about the issue over the whole world. Though they may have been right about the merits of the case, Dubois argues, they were wrong in the methods they used if they were seeking to free the victims. Dubois saw the path of violent revolution as a disaster for black people. He was opposed not so much to the goals of socialist struggle as to the methods of revolutionary violence, which may have been the only method possible against the Russian Empire. He did not think this the case in the United States. This was especially true because the United States was not a society with a class structure based on the exploitation of the overwhelming majority of the population, workers, by a small minority of capitalists. Dubois held that the color line in the U.S. working class was more significant than the division between white workers and capitalists. This, he argued, was an incontrovertible fact that Russian communists ignored. American Negroes were asked to accept a complete dogma without question or alteration. It was first of all emphasized that all racial thought and racial segregation must go and that Negroes must put themselves blindly under the dictatorship of the Communist Party, Dubois 1968-205. Dubois confronts the praxis of official communism. During the period of the Great Migration and the Great War, Dubois confronted the criticism of a younger generation of intellectual activists who came to be known as the New Negro Radicals. 
These young radicals were mostly organic intellectuals who readily grasped the need for an internationalist approach to the oppression of the race. While I discuss the impact of the new Negro radicals in the next chapter, I should indicate here that by the 1920s Dubois had passed most of these intellectuals on the left, becoming in the process the new standard bearer of the race-first black radicals. During the 1930s a number of academically based intellectuals found themselves in the realm of the Communist Party, E. Franklin Fraser, Abram Harris, and Ralph Bunch, and criticized Dubois for his alleged petty bourgeois nationalism. The manner in which Dubois moved to the left eventually illuminated the entire landscape of historical capitalism in a way no one had before. In this sense Dubois differed from a number of younger black intellectuals among the new Negro radicals of the post-World War I period, such as Hubert Harrison, Cyril Briggs, Richard Moore, and A. Philip Randolph, and the 1930s intellectuals who became members of the National Negro Congress, John Davis, E. Franklin Fraser, Ralph Bunch, and Abram Harris. John Davis, who was a classmate of Ralph Bunch's at Harvard University, founded the Negro Industrial League with Robert Weaver as a critic of the discriminatory practices of Roosevelt's National Recovery Administration. After the Negro Industrial League was disbanded, Davis persuaded the NAACP to fund the Joint Council for National Recovery. Because of his connection with Bunch, who headed Howard University's Division of the Social Sciences, which had been the brainchild of Bunch, Fraser, and Harris, Mordecai Johnson, president of Howard University, offered a conference hall on Howard's campus to John Davis for a national conference of the economic crisis and the Negro. A variety of positions were put forward at this conference. James Ford spoke about the Communist Party's position, Norman Thomas discussed the Socialist Party's position, A. Philip Randolph spoke about the Negro and the trade union movement, Ralph Bunch presented a critique of New Deal social planning as it affected the Negro, John Davis spoke about the overall plight of the Negro under the New Deal, Emmett Dorsey spoke about the Negro and social planning, and Dubois spoke about social planning for the Negro past and present. There was a consensus that the New Deal was failing blacks and that something drastic had to be done. Hutchinson, 1995, holds that Dubois proposed a mixture of nationalist, black capitalist, and socialist economic solutions to attack the crisis. Dubois cautioned the participants that there was no automatic power in socialism to override and suppress racial prejudice, Hutchinson 1995-160. Dubois, 1936, held that, one of the worst things that Negroes could do today would be to join the American Communist Party or one of its branches. The Communists of America have become dogmatic exponents of the inspired word of Karl Marx as they read it. They believe, apparently, in immediate, violent and bloody revolution, and are willing to try any and all means of raising hell anywhere and under any circumstances. This is a silly program even for white men. For American colored men, it is suicide. Dubois agreed that the world-wrenching changes needed for the abolition of capitalist exploitation would call for revolution as Marx had argued. But he did not think such revolution required violence and bloodshed, Dubois 1936-123-124. After the conference, according to Hutchinson, Dubois quietly withdrew his support for the Congress movement. Also after the conference, some of the conveners met at Ralph Bunch's campus house to sketch out plans for the National Negro Congress, Holloway 2002-75. Dubois had resigned from the board of the NAACP and from his position as the editor of the crisis having been unable to convince the organization that its criticism of his so-called segregationist position was wrong. Now he was faced with a similar but distinct criticism from the left. It is important to understand the substance of these criticisms because they still carry some weight among some of the leftist intelligentsia even today, though some of these criticisms are now muted since Dubois would later join forces with the Communist Party. It is important to note, 
however, that his membership also had internationalist context, in much the same way as that of an earlier group of new Negro radicals who joined the Communist Party of the United States. While Communist Party spokesman James Ford, 1936, agreed with Dubois that the black upper class was not by and large an exploiter of black labor, Ford was concerned that this bourgeoisie obtained its existence via the existence of segregation and that it was in the interest of this class to maintain segregation or the very basis of Negro businesses would be destroyed. However, segregation was the worst feature of the oppression of the Negro masses. Segregation was thus the enemy of the Negro masses. According to Ford, Dubois said also to have argued that it was the Negro upper class that bore the brunt of color prejudice and were the leaders of the Negro people toward a better future. Along with Kelly Miller, Dubois is said to have favored race solidarity and opposed the solidarity of Negro and white labor. 14. Dubois is further said to have attributed the exploitation of the black working class not to the white capitalist but to white labor, whose racial attitudes were said to be inborn and not subject to change. To accept such a position meant for Ford that there was no hope of liberation. Ford 1936. Ralph Bunch likewise declared his opposition to certain black nationalist ideologies, racially inspired boycotts that he argued widened the already deplorable gap between white and black working classes by placing competition for jobs on a strictly racial basis. Black separatist schemes, such as those proposed by individuals like W.E.B. Dubois, were even more futile because by marginalizing black workers from full participation in American life, they would set them up in a black political and economic outhouse. Kirby 1974-131. Anthony Platt's reconsideration of E. Franklin Fraser provides us with a wonderful snapshot of how Fraser responded to what Platt refers to as Dubois' dramatic shift to the right in the 1930s. In May 1934, just prior to Dubois' resignation from the NAACP, Fraser wrote a long letter to NAACP Chair Walter White about his disagreements with Dubois and the NAACP and clarified how his own nationalism differed from the nationalism expressed by Dubois. The root of Fraser's disagreement with Dubois seems to have been in a formulation about human agency that Fraser's own rendition does not entirely clarify. While Fraser accused Dubois of giving an analysis that stressed the futility of the fight against segregation, he also concedes that this may be so. It is conceivable that institutions and social arrangements cannot be affected by human effort. But even the communist, with his materialistic conception of history, does not believe it. Platt 1991 188. Here Fraser himself seems to evade the very real tension between agency, ideology, and structure which seems to have bracketed Dr. Dubois' hesitance toward the communists during this period. Travel to the USSR and China during that period seems to have broadened his view and widened the scope of his praxis, that praxis, as well as analysis could be internationalized. In The Failure of the Negro Intellectual published in the February 1962 issue of Negro Digest, Fraser looking wistfully back on the heady days of the 1930s and 1940s had somewhat of a more appreciative stance on Dubois. He was deeply disappointed about the current crop of Negro intellectuals who have accepted supinely as heroes the Negroes whom white people have given us and told us to revere. Even today they run away from Dubois and Paul Robeson, Fraser 1962. But during the 1930s, when the masses were on the move, things looked different to Fraser. now was the time to act and such action required an alliance with the communist movement. Platt focuses on Fraser's contention that the time to act is now. He points out that the heart of Fraser's critique of Dubois' position was that Dubois was taking refuge in a tame and harmless racialism. Because he was too old or is afraid to risk his livelihood in coming out in favor of communism or the destruction of competitive capitalist society as the only solution to the Negro's problem. He told, 
Walter, White that it was a mistake to confuse Dubois's racial separateness with Fraser's advocacy of the development of group morale and solidarity, a position that he had taken at the Amenia Conference, Platt 1991-188. Fraser held that he did not envisage a Negro ghetto, stratified to bourgeois society. Unlike Dubois, Fraser claimed to be advocating revolutionary nationalism, which Fraser defined as the development of racial solidarity as a cohesive force among a people who were exploited by the white master class in this country. Platt 1991-188. Later, in the first issue of the journal Race, which had invited Fraser to its editorial board, Fraser penned a devastating attack on Dubois. Dubois remains an intellectual who toys with the idea of the Negro as a separate cultural group. He has only an occasional romantic interest in the Negro as a distinct race. Nothing could be more unendurable for him than to live within a black ghetto or within a black nation, unless perhaps he were king and then probably he would attempt to unite the whites and blacks through marriage of the royal families. If a fascist movement should develop in America, Dubois would play into the hands of its leaders through his program for the development of Negro racialism. Since Dubois is an intellectual who loves to play with ideas but shuns reality, whether it be in the form of black masses or a revolution, he likes to display a familiarity with Marxian ideology. In an article in The Crisis he demonstrated, in a few hundred words, the error of applying Marxian conceptions to the economic conditions of the Negro in America. Later in Black Reconstruction in America he played with Marxian terminology as a literary device. This is all as it should be, for Dubois has said that there shall be no revolution and that economic justice and the abolition of poverty shall come through reason, the intellectual speaks, sacrifice, the romanticist speaks, and the intelligent use of the ballot, in the end he remains a liberal and like Douglas and Washington before him he does not provide the kind of social criticism which is needed for blacks to achieve an appropriate orientation in the present state of American capitalism. Platt 1991-189 Fraser's criticism intersects with a much later critique of the extent to which Dubois' mature revolutionary phase, from the mid-1930s onward, even including his post-World War II embrace of Bolshevism, continued to be a manifestation of Fabian socialism, as is argued by Adolf Reed. 1997. Reed contends that Lenin's fascination with scientific management indicates that even the most revolutionary trend in Marxism can be considered a more politically aggressive and successful version of collectivism. Reed notes that Lenin defined the revolutionary social democrat as a Jacobin who totally identifies himself with the organization of the proletariat, a proletariat conscious of its class interests. For Reed, Bolshevism is thus distinguished precisely by its Jacobinist radicalism its political aggressiveness and willing to force its program of rationalist homogenization on society through rupture. In this sense Reed argues Bolshevism joins other collectivist stances as a realization under contemporary historical circumstances of a central strain of the telus of the bourgeois enlightenment, the domination of the concept over its object, Reed 1997-22. For Reed this distinction means that it diminishes the significance of our need to distinguish when or whether Dubois actually became a revolutionary Marxist. The organizing principle of Dubois' thought remains pretty much the same throughout his long career, according to Reed, a fact particularly evident in his attitude about the importance of science in social affairs and the proper organization of the African-American population and even in his political concerns about Pan-Africanism and socialism, Reed 1997-22. Reed argues that Dubois' intellectual and political evolution embracing collectivism, the cooperative commonwealth, and anti-modernism represented a set of responses manifest in the intelligentsia of this period to the cultural crises of the late 19th century, which I have designated variously as the onset of the rise of the United States to a hegemonic position in the world system, the beginning of the worldwide challenge of the extra-European world to pan-European supremacy, 
and the organization of the laboring classes against the exploitation and rationalization of the capitalist organization of societies, the capitalist world economy. In the post-World War II period, Dubois would change his position and explain it in the context of the appeal of the Soviet Union to a range of black radicals from the 1920s through the 1940s. Dubois wrote Russia and America to situate the growing attraction of Soviet communism in the context of the manner in which the Soviet Revolution dealt with the minority nationalities within the Russian borders and the 1936 constitutional amendment outlawing racism. Viewing the possibility of new forms of egalitarian communities arising in such an environment, Dubois set out in Russia and America to unhinge the prevailing misconception that communism was an anti-democratic conspiracy posturing as a peace movement. In the aftermath of the Second World War Dubois was convinced that the Soviet Union promised a democratic and egalitarian society more so than any Western nation, Baldwin 2002-155. Indeed, Baldwin argues that Dubois had increasingly interpreted the Soviet experience through his own experience as an African-American and thus increasingly came to understand that racial and cultural differentiation were transnationally oriented. The systematic violence of industrial capitalism seemed to weld various populations together as common foes of an oppressive social system. The Russians had been marked as non-historic people by Western philosophers of identity and thus like African Americans were excluded from the Hegelian geist of historical progress. Dubois was keenly aware of these historical resonances between Slavs and Africans, and found in Russia an unoppositional counter to Western European constructs of selfhood. Dubois elaborates the similarities between enslavement and serfdom, and concludes that what the U.S. has actually done in the post-World War II period is to reformulate the color line in the face of the Soviet Union's refusal to be white, Baldwin 2002-158-159. Dubois' publisher, Robert Giroux, declined to publish Russia and America because he thought it an uncritical apologia for the Soviet Union and unduly critical of the United States. Although Dubois cautions the reader throughout that the Soviet Union is not a utopia or a fairyland of joy and plenty and that his reason may be strained, Baldwin 2002-170, Baldwin thinks that the sections of the manuscript on enforced collectivization and liquidation of the kulaks by Stalin are a bit more than strained, Baldwin 2002-170. Dubois' Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, David Levering Lewis points out that Dubois justified the corruption of the Soviet Revolution manifested in such practices by adjusting the Russian casualty tables in the light of the Atlantic slave trade, the scramble for Africa, the needless First World War, Nazi death camps, and the color-coded poverty and wage slavery raging in and beyond North America. To Dubois, the degradation of the communist ideal was philosophically irrelevant to the expiation of the sins of American democracy whose very possibility he now doubted, Lewis 2000-557. While significant political forces that have been aligned with official communism counted themselves comrades of Dubois, the New Left and intellectuals associated with the New Left, including anti-colonial revolutionaries who came to prominence in the 1950s and 1960s, are also the intellectual and political progeny of Dubois. In my view, this stream derives from the independent position that Dubois staked out in the 1930s. I try here to trace the trajectory of this stream and its challenge to white world supremacy. First we should underline that Black Reconstruction in America was written during the period when Dubois was in the process of developing a new analysis of the world and the place of black people in it, inspired by Marxism and the World Socialist Movement. In addition he was advocating a new strategy for social change on the basis of reconceptualizing the lessons of the past strategy of the NAACP. Second. It should be noted that the original title of the work according to Lewis was Black Reconstruction of Democracy in America, Lewis 2000-361. 
This gives a sense of the scope that Dubois had for the work that we have come to know as Black Reconstruction in America, in which Dubois, 1979, presents his task as arguing against the intellectual apologists for slavery for the humanity of black people. In effect, however, he is undertaking a much more radical transformation of the intellectual landscape by a dramatic reshaping of our intellectual understanding of the shape of the social world and the place of black people in it, both as objects of racial capitalism and as subjects of revolutionary transformation. I argue in what follows that black reconstruction in America reflects the most sophisticated analysis of the world capitalist system as a historical social system until the time of its publication and for the next 40 years, when intellectuals associated with the national liberation movements in the periphery and with the new left in the core states began to assimilate the lessons that do. Bois had articulated in black reconstruction. The analysis in Black Reconstruction is also significant because it captures that particular moment in time like no other work at that time in terms of the beginning of the quest of the United States for hegemonic status in the world system and the implications of that strategy for democracy in the U.S. and world racial order. A third issue that Black Reconstruction addresses is the revolutionary agency of the southern rural strata, which contradicts both the Marxist dogma about the industrial proletariat against a so-called rural peasantry and the Leninist dogma about the Revolutionary Party as the necessary transmitter of revolutionary ideas and methods of organization to the working class. From the history of the struggle between the industrial north and the slave south, Dubois learned important lessons that enabled him to make this important contribution. When the South decided to strike out on its own because of the political power it held because of slavery and the disenfranchisement of poor whites, it did not reckon on the weakness of its social fabric, related specifically to its failure to incorporate the working strata into any kind of partnership or perceived partnership with the ruling strata. When the South went to war with the North, its entire labor class, black and white, went into economic revolt. The breach could only have been healed by making the same concessions to labor that France, England, and Germany in the North had made. There was no time for such change in the midst of war. Northern industry must, therefore, after the war, make the adjustment with labor which Southern agriculture refused to make. But the loss which agriculture sustained though the stubbornness of the planters led to the degradation of agriculture throughout the modern world, Dubois 1979-47. The abolition of American slavery started the transportation of capital from white to black countries where slavery prevailed with the same tremendous and awful consequences upon the laboring classes of the world which we see about us today. When raw materials cannot be raised in a country like the United States, it could be raised in the tropics and semi-tropics under a dictatorship of industry, commerce and manufacture and with no free farming class. The competition of a slave-directed agriculture in the West Indies and South America, in Africa and Asia, eventually ruined the economic efficiency of agriculture in the United States and in Europe and precipitated the modern economic degradation of the white farmer, while it put in the hands of the owners of the machine such a monopoly of raw material that their domination of white labor was more and more complete. Dubois 1979-48 The slave-holding class of the South sharply objected to what they deemed to be the hypocrisy of the North and liberal Europe who in their opposition to slavery failed to comprehend that it was a system of work that was not different in essence from the system of labor in the North and Europe. They were all exploiting labor. The so-called free laborers of the North and liberal Europe were only free to starve if they did not work on terms dictated by the employers, while slaved laborers were the responsibility of the slaveholding classes from birth to death. Dubois thought this was a credible argument in solely economic terms, but even in these terms this system was illogical. It enforced a system of cheap and degraded labor that undermined the possibility of modernization and the consequent upgrading of the workers' standard of living and quality of life. It thus enforced a backwardness that precluded the internal growth of the system, 
which could grow only by the expansion of its land base, which of course would quickly come up against its limits. Even more important was the untenability of the human consequences of the system, in terms of both the labor, which could not forever be repressed, and the employers, whose humanity was constantly degraded by this system. Frederick Douglass summed up the issue as well as anyone, I understand this policy to comprehend five cardinal objects. They are these, first, the complete suppression of all anti-slavery discussion. 2d, the expatriation of the entire free people of color from the United States. 3d, the unending perpetuation of slavery in this republic. Fourth, the nationalization of slavery to the extent of making slavery respected in every state of the union. Fifth, the extension of slavery over Mexico and the entire South American states, Dubois 1979-53. Dubois argued that this was a system of industry so humanly unjust and economically inefficient that if it had not committed suicide in civil war, it would have disintegrated of its own weight. In the end, however, the system could not endure and resulted in civil war as a means to extend its life. The final death of the system exacted its own revenge as it stalled the ability of the working classes to gain any hegemony over the resulting society to prevent it from imposing a compromise such as that established and built on in Europe and the North. It did so by demonizing black labor. The slaveholding South feared the success of their former property more so than their own failure. They were angry, vengeful, and hysterical. They held up black people to ridicule. They said, look at these niggers, they are black and poor and ignorant. How can they rule those of us who are white and who have been rich and have at our command all wisdom and skill? Back to slavery with the dumb brutes. Dubois 1979-633 Dubois points how the former slaveholding class lied about black people, accused them of theft, crimes, moral enormities, and laughable grotesqueries. They appealed to the fear and hatred of white labor, offering them alliances, the pleasures of the pillage of black bodies, the hands of their daughters in marriage, and the achievement of a solid South, an ignorant intolerant, and ruthless land impervious to reason, justice, or fact. They encouraged white labor to indulge their hatred, Dubois 1979-633. On the other side of the coin was a North that had developed as a counterpoint opposed to the expansion of slavery, not so much because it offended their sense of morality, but because of the threat that such expansion posed to them. Indeed morality is was a dead issue since the profitability of some Northern industries were built in part on the slave system. In an attempt to balance the oppositions among northern white labor, free Africans, and idealists, they were forced to refuse more land to slavery, refuse to catch and return slaves, and, finally, fight for freedom since this preserved cotton, tobacco, sugar, and the southern market. This contradictory situation led to the glimpse in the north of a degree of concentrated wealth unprecedented in the history of the world, which gave rise in 1876 to a new capitalism and a new enslavement of labor including a relatively high-wage section of whites and a low-wage section of people with white, brown, yellow, and black skin, without legal recourse. What Dubois had called the dictatorship of the proletariat during the period 1867-1876 had been defeated, and with it the possibility of the steady rise of the working classes and the casting of the entire world system into a racial capitalism that operated in ways that had to be understood to be challenged. This was the context in which Dubois sought to reconstruct the strategy of social transformation of the world system. Dubois argues in contrast to the Communist Party of the United States of America and most other Marxists in the United States and Europe that what is unique about the white working class in the United States is that despite their history as laboring people in the lands from which they emigrated, once they reached the United States they did not regard themselves as a permanent laboring class. Dubois argues that because of its property, the successful, 
well-paid American working class formed a petite bourgeoisie always ready to join capital in exploiting common labor, black or white, foreign or native. In contrast to the European working class notion of a collective struggle to elevate the whole class, in the United States the ideology of the working class was individual upward mobility. This exacerbated the competition for jobs, which is the lot of any working class that denies the existence of a class community. Even the early Marxists among the English and German émigrés were infected by the availability of free land in the U.S. West. Because of the land monopoly in Europe, immigrant workers grasped the significance of abundant land more quickly. They thus viewed more clearly the divergent trajectories they might take in the new land, gravitating toward the degraded status of the enslaved African or moving upward into the petite bourgeoisie. This hardened the contention between wage labor and free labor. An example is the position taken in 1846 by Hermann Krieger, a German immigrant who had worked very closely with Marx and Engels. Originally a trade union organizer and socialist, by 1846 he was preaching land reform and free soil. We see in the slavery question a property question which cannot be settled by itself alone. That we should declare ourselves in favor of the abolitionist movement if it were our intention to throw the republic into a state of anarchy, to extend the competition of the free working men beyond all measure, and to depress labor itself to the last extremity. That we could not improve the lot of our black brothers by abolition under the conditions prevailing in modern society, but make infinitely worse the lot of our white brothers. That we believe is in the peaceable development of society in the untied states and do not, therefore, here at least see our only hope and condition of the extremist degradation. That we feel constrained, therefore, to oppose abolition with all of our might, despite all the importunities of sentimental Philistines and despite all the poetical effusions of liberty intoxicated ladies. Quoted in Dubois 1979-23. For these early Marxists in the United States, abolition represented capital. Thus they made no attempt to bring the anti-slavery movement into an alliance with the trade union movement, much less view the anti-slavery movement as part of the workers' movement. On a much larger scale, scholars, journalists, public officials, and the white public in the South chose to discredit the efforts of the formerly enslaved Africans in an unprecedented manner involving universities, history, science, social life, and religion. Dubois provides a panoramic view of these efforts that speaks volumes about these efforts of historical distortion. The most magnificent drama in the last thousand years of human history is the transportation of 10 million human beings out of the dark beauty of their mother continent into the newfound El Dorado of the West. They descended into hell, and in the third century they rose from the dead, in the finest effort to achieve democracy for the working millions that the world has ever seen. It was a tragedy that beggared the Greeks, it was an upheaval of humanity like the Reformation and the French Revolution. Yet we are blind and led by the blind. We discern in it no part of our labor movement, no part of our industrial triumph, no part of our religious experience. Before the dumb eyes of ten generations of ten million children, it is made mockery of and spit upon, a degradation of the Eternal Mother, a sneer at human effort, with aspiration and art deliberately and elaborately distorted. And why? Because in a day when the human mind aspired to a science of human action, a history and psychology of the mighty effort of the mightiest century, we fell under the leadership of those who would compromise with truth in the past in order to make peace in the present and guide policy in the future. Dubois 1979-727 Dubois argues that the plight of the white working class throughout the world was traceable to black slavery in the United States, the foundation of modern commerce and industry. Because slavery was deemed a threat to free labor, it was partially overthrown in 1863. The resulting color cast founded and retained by capitalism was adopted, forwarded, and approved by white labor and resulted in the subordination of colored labor to white profits the world over. 
Thus, the majority of the world's laborers, by the insistence of white labor, became the basis of a system of industry that ruined democracy and showed its perfect fruit in World War and Depression, Dubois, 1979, p. 30. Dubois's class analysis of the slave system is at once elegant and insightful. He argues that the planters were a bourgeoisie who refused to act like a bourgeoisie. By focusing on consumption of their profits and by refusing to invest in the workforce, use machinery, and adopt modern methods, they allowed Northern and European capital to set the prices for the goods they produced. The planter justified the slave system by arguing that the black people were not capable of higher intelligence and increased efficiency. Religious leaders reverted to the curse of Canaan, men of science gathered and supplemented all available doctrines of race inferiority, and educators and scholars repeated these ideas. The planter's propaganda was based on his angle of vision on his enslaved laborers. He saw ignorant and sullen labor deliberately reducing his profits, Dubois 1979-40. The enslaved Africans might be made to work continuously, but there was no power the slaveholders could wield that would make them work well. In contrast to some Marxist arguments about a so-called false consciousness among the white working class, who identified their interests with their own ruling class instead of their class brothers and sisters across national borders and ethnic lines, Dubois argues that the problem of the times was not that the white workers were ignorant. William Green and Matthew Wolfe of the AFL have no excuse of illiteracy or religion to veil their deliberate intention to keep Negroes and Mexicans and other elements of common labor, in a lower proletariat as subservient to their interests as theirs are to the interests of capital, Dubois 1973-210-216. In the capitalist world economy of the 20th century, the white working class no longer occupied an unambiguous proletarian position in the social structure. Since capitalistic production had now gained worldwide organization, there developed in the American working class a large petite bourgeoisie. According to Dubois, a new class of technical engineers and managers has arisen forming a working class aristocracy between the older proletariat and the absentee owners of capital. They, form a new petty bourgeois class, whose interests are bound up with those of the capitalists and antagonistic to those of common labor. Common labor in America and white Europe far from being motivated by any vision of revolt against capitalism has been blinded by the American vision of the possibility of layer after layer of the workers escaping into the wealthy class and becoming managers and employers of labor. Dubois 1971-213-214 This new class structure of the capitalist world economy meant that in the United States there was a wild and ruthless scramble of labor groups seeking to obtain greater wealth on the backs of black and immigrant labor. However, immigrant labor adopted the same stance toward black labor, eventually resulting, in my view, in the creation of a white working class that by 1945 occupied an essentially intermediate status in the capitalist world economy. On the one hand, this arrangement has spawned a new proletariat worldwide of colored workers toiling under conditions equivalent to those of 19th century capitalism. On the other hand, capitalists have consolidated their economic power, nullified universal suffrage, and bribed the white workers by high wages, visions of wealth, and the opportunity to drive niggers. Dubois 1971-213-214. Soldiers and sailors from the white workers are used to keep darkies in their places and white foremen and engineers have been established as irresponsible satraps in China, India, Africa, and the West Indies, backed by the organized and centralized ownership of machines, raw materials, finished commodities and land monopoly over the whole world, Dubois 1971-214. While this same process has given rise to a petite bourgeoisie among blacks in the United States, West Africa, South America, and the West Indies, the opportunity for upward mobility of the petite bourgeoisie in these different locales varies. 
The group in the United States is particularly weak, having little opportunity or no ability to exploit the labor power of black workers. Furthermore, any significant hope of enlarging this group is an idle dream, because, as Braverman, 1974, points out, those individuals who in earlier times might have become small business persons for the most part have opportunities only to become employees of capital, that is, a part of the new petite bourgeoisie, Braverman 1974-403-409. As Dubois argues, the period of radical reconstruction was the only time that there was an opportunity for the United States to eliminate race instead of class as the principal stratifying process. As the United States became a contender for the hegemonic position in the capitalist world, as capital expanded to incorporate the African, Asian, and Latin American peripheries more securely under its control, and as the core ruling classes consolidated their rule through a social democratic alliance with sections of the organized working class, racism became pervasively integral to the structures of authority, as an open or tacit form of legitimation, and to the structures of rule, to which matters of legitimacy are strictly incidental. These relations of rule and authority are complemented in the world-scale social system of production by the intensification of core periphery polarization, itself a reflection of the ordinary working of the capitalist world economy. Wage structures followed suit everywhere, white workers received higher wages and people of color lower wages. In the core during this period the United States was the only principal locale of non-white workers. Since inequality was a given, this racial distinction anchored the principal social arrangements of structures of rule by both government and organizations, and structures of production, as administered and developed by increasingly large-scale, that is, centralized, concentrated, capital. The world-scale scope of racism, as fundamental to rule and to the determination of wage scales, made equality a historical impossibility in the United States. No matter what the Communist Party of the USA did, inequality between white workers and people of color would have remained a central feature of the society. Only a successful revolution which would have to have been a world revolution, could have changed this situation. Nonetheless, an American Communist Party made up disproportionately, not necessarily predominantly, of black and Latino workers and intellectuals would have seriously altered the relations of force between capital and labor in the United States and would have been a much more serious obstacle to the consolidation of a white-dominated and exclusionary social democratic alliance in the United States. The Social Democratic Alliance accepts both the hegemony of capital and implicitly a racially structured capitalist world economy, which allows white workers to assume an intermediate position in the social division of labor. From the perspective of the dominant strata of the United States, the Second Reconstruction simply sought to assimilate blacks, Puerto Ricans, Mexican Americans, and other historically disadvantaged groups to the subaltern intermediate strata, whose job it was to manage the subordinate classes in the United States and in the world capitalist division of labor. This was not responsive to Dr. King's 1963 challenge that the United States live out the true meaning of its creed, movement toward a truly collective commonwealth which he later envisioned would unite with the barefoot people of the world. The world system's relations of rule cut two ways. The mobilization of these subaltern strata did not simply serve the aims of the ruling classes of the United States and the capitalist world. Never are the class alliances of the world system so unidimensional. As in most cases, these subaltern strata, despite their embeddedness in the capitalist world economy, had a historical consciousness that sought to make arrangements on their own terms. These classes were of course also embedded in oppressed communities whose lives manifested a phenomenon close in some ways to the colonial experience, though in some ways more intense in terms of political psychology. 
the complexities of what could be called an instance of domestic colonialism gave rise to an alternative to the capitalist project among those who were more closely related to the lower strata in these communities. This alternative was manifest in various oppositional or counter-hegemonic ideologies, black power, cultural nationalism, Afrocentrism, revolutionary nationalism, social democracy, Marxism, womanism, black liberation theology, and so on. The proportion of the black intelligentsia who supported one or another of these counter-hegemonic ideologies tended at various times to hold sway over this social group. This was true during the New Negro movement of the post-World War I period and during the various movements that came to the fore during the nationalist movements of the 1930s, the movements associated with the Popular Front during the 1930s and 1940s, and the movements of the 1960s and 1970s. This is a very broad swath of time and a quite remarkable occurrence for a group that has lived in the core of the capitalist world for more than a century and that is still politically associated with the radicals on the periphery of the capitalist world economy. Thus, in the 1960s, when Malcolm X argued that African Americans and other oppressed groups in the United States were not a minority but a part of the majority of the have-nots of the capitalist world, he captured the key point of what Dubois had argued for most of the century. Malcolm articulated a sense of self that had long existed in the deepest recesses of the black imagination and had been suggested by the most visionary black leaders since the time of Henry Highland Garnet and David Walker. When Dubois argued at the turn of the century that the problem of the 20th century would be the problem of the color line, he was bringing forward a vision with deep roots. Dr. Dubois would ultimately do the deep theoretical formulation that revealed the power of this vision, but it was like a part of the collective unconscious of the black population. 15 When able to give expression to this sense, the people became infused with a transcendent spirit that gave them exceptional spiritual power. When King called for unity with the barefoot people of the world against the biggest purveyor of violence, inequality, and oppression on the face of the earth, the U.S. government, the stage was set for the final showdown between the rulers of the capitalist world and their subaltern allies, and the overwhelming majority of the people of the world. This staging had to be undone in no uncertain terms. The murders of Malcolm X, King, Fred Hampton, Bunchy Carter, George Jackson, and dozens of members of the Black Panther Party were deliberate actions of a counterinsurgency designed to destroy this movement and its tracks. There is a tendency in the movement itself to view revolution in cataclysmic terms and therefore to view what the movement was doing as pre-revolutionary. The state had a clearer appreciation of the problem posed to the fundamental inequalities of the status quo. They moved aggressively to stop this movement. W.E.B. Dubois had himself been a victim of such repression, regardless of his assiduous avoidance of the language of violent revolution and his vocation as a Fabian socialist, a Pan-African nationalist, a Pan-African internationalist and a revolutionary Marxist over the course of his life. His attempt to simultaneously engage the African world inside U.S. borders, the African world outside U.S. borders, the dark world, and progressive people everywhere was clear to the defenders of the existing power relations of the world system. Again, black particularisms were the crucible of a position that was truly internationalist and revolutionary. This was the lesson that many millions of people took from the teachings, writings, and practices of the great African-American intellectual and activist W.E.B. Dubois.